I will happily march along with a police officer into the foreign office and point out the people that I think may be complicit in potential war crimes. It'll take one country, one country to issue a domestic arrest warrant for suspected war criminals and issue that arrest warrant through Interpol, red notices, or a dispersal order for every treaty member of Interpol to then be obliged to arrest that politician anywhere in the world. And do you know what? I'm proud to say that's my objective. I'm going to go on record and say I think Karim Khan will issue arrest warrants for Israeli war criminals because if he doesn't, then that institution is ended as far as I can see. It will not have credibility on the face of this earth ever again. Welcome to Palestine Deep Dive. I'm Dani Abulhaj, a Palestinian lawyer and legal officer at the International Center of Justice for Palestinians. Today, I am having a conversation with my colleague and director, Taya Bali, who is also a solicitor at Binance. We talk about the International Court of Justice Provisional Measures decision. We talk about accountability on both the domestic level, the international level. We talk about British nationals joining the IDF. We talk about politicians' complicity. Hi, Tayab. Hi, Daniel. It's good to be uh, sitting across the table from you today. Are uh, you asking the questions for a change? I remember uh, when we met two years ago, over two years ago, two and a half years ago, um, I was uh, applying for this job that I'm currently in. And uh, I was a bit reluctant as a Palestinian to leave my country, my family, and you know take this job. Uh, ICJP was still relatively new back then, mm -hmm. uh, even though you've said it, it was 10 years in the making. Um, so yeah, and I think you said something back then to me, um, which was the reason that I took this job uh, that I think would be important to expand on. Um, you said that you wanted this organization to be different. You wanted to do everything through the lens of the law. Uh, you said that this is the time for accountability. Uh, and you said to me that if the law is good enough to protect the rights of the Palestinian people, it, it is good enough to protect the rights of anyone else. So, yeah. Would you mind telling us about, you know, how you got to this point, um, the work that you've done in the past, why Palestine is such an important, you know, cause for you, why you started ICJP? Sure. So, <clears throat> as you know, I'm sort of at the base a criminal defense lawyer and uh, head of international law at Bymans. And so that really is the core of everything that I've wanted to do and um, set out to do when I was set on this path when I was doing my A-levels as a 16, 17-year-old. And um, it's really weird because, you know, you, you, you're meant to in your life, well, you, you, it's advised that you write your goals and then you set out to achieve them. And it's, it's sort of really strange that when I was sort of a sad 16, 17-year-old, I actually imagined myself to be doing exactly the work that I'm doing now. And um, that came out of the conflicts in uh, Bosnia and the genocide that happened there, uh, ironically enough. Because um, when I was raising money for people uh, who had been harmed in that conflict, um, there was a lot of objection to it, you know, and I didn't understand that. Um, I was relatively politically naive. I wasn't really uh, aware of international issues. And um, I really wanted to understand why people would object to something which is really quite straightforward, right? You know, you've got uh, a crisis, you've got people being hurt, 
um, and you've got some people wanting to help those people that are victims of war crimes at the time and you've got people objecting to that and it was then that I um, it's that objection that really bothered me and I thought well I, this is something I want to be part of I, I want to understand it I want to work against that objection because fundamentally for me being a uh, young man in Yorkshire um, I'd been raised to see people whoever they were wherever they came from as the same um, I mean, it's funny that actually people used to term me and my friends United Colours of Benetton because we were all from different ethnic backgrounds and we didn't see that. We, we recognised the difference between us, but we didn't see it as an issue or an obstacle and had quite a rich upbringing because I had people from such diverse backgrounds. So, so when I was 16, 17, I thought, well, what's the best way for me to deal with that prejudice that I'd suddenly... Uh, weirdly come across and it was to become a politician maybe right and I thought the best way to become a politician is to become a lawyer and what I've learned on this journey is that um, being involved in protecting people's rights strangely and, and surprisingly for me you can be much more effective as a lawyer than a politician and so for me being a, a lawyer is now much more important um, in, in this last couple of years where I've explored uh, a, 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 the sort of the real political career for various different parties what I've learned is that um, you can look into the eyes of a politician you can see what's in their mind and in their heart and it's very different from what comes out of their mouth and that's really disturbing luckily as a lawyer you can speak in whatever way you want you can represent a position you can advocate it but you have to justify it and you have to justify it in the way that you're going to find out now by giving actual answers to questions and one of the things you asked me was um why palestine well it wasn't palestine originally actually um before i was involved in the zippy livni arrest warrant in 2009 which we can talk about uh, which was the key decision that helped me to set up the ICJP. I, I wanted to work across the globe on human rights issues, human rights violations. I mean, in, in my private practice in um, Bymans, I do. I, I work in Pakistan, I work in Kazakhstan, I work across the Middle East. Um, I spend more of my time suing uh, the country that I live in, the United Kingdom, and countries where my parents have come from, Pakistan, um, than I do anywhere else, actually. Um, so, so. So I have that practice, that very broad practice. And um, what I recognized was that people would fund legal cases to protect their businesses and protect their financial interests and their commercial interests, but they wouldn't fund legal cases very easily to fund and protect, sorry, to protect people. And I found that really disturbing. So I originally set out to create a human rights organization that would um, protect people across the board, but it's difficult. You know, you can't have answers for everybody in the world. So I had to pick a single issue that I thought was probably the, one of the most important human rights issues on the planet Earth. And I, in a lucky position, being a lawyer in London, I could choose. And um, I had lots of experiences, you know, with Palestinian work, um, with the Zippy Livni arrest warrant and representing Palestinian advocacy issues for, for a number of years. Um, I also had uh, some experience representing Jewish people with an Israeli background, um, particularly when they had employment issues. I had a, I had a practice as a trainee representing uh, people specifically from that community that had a very specific problem within the Jewish community. 
Um, but, but when I was looking and examining issues, um, I, thought, I thought Palestine was a very particular problem because for me, my human rights motivation comes from World War II and it comes from what human beings did to Jewish people in that conflict or in that war. And seeing that devastation meant for me that I, 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 don't, I, don't, I, couldn't, I couldn't understand that in the same way as I couldn't understand why people would object to me raising money for Bosnians. And um, I examined my personal view on things and, and I came to a conclusion that international humanitarian law, uh, the European Convention on Human Rights, the International Convention on Human Rights, um, the UN Charter, these, these, these institutions and these set of rules were designed very specifically for the first time in hum human history as a collective to try to prevent the kinds of prejudice that I saw in Bosnia, the kinds of issues and prejudices and murder and uh, devastation that I saw in World War II. And I wanted to be part of that. And so from what, what I found really odd was that from that being, these rules being born, alongside that, in parallel to it, there's this situation for a group of people that aren't, I, I'm not Palestinian, so they weren't necessarily my people in that sense. And they were suffering a similar kind of uh, prejudice to those that we'd seen in Bosnia and those that we'd seen in, in World War II. And it was enduring, right? It'd been lasted, it lasted, this lasted since World War II, from before World War II to now. And so for me, working towards eradicating that issue, that, that prejudice, that problem, that, that uh, asymmetrical system that Palestinians, that subjugation that Palestinians lived under, I thought would be a significant challenge, but also an important challenge. If you could do that, if you could work towards fixing that, then you really go quite far in solving the similar problem across the globe. And that's why I chose Palestine. And that's why I chose Palestinians as being the people I would work for. And that's why I created the International Centre of Justice of Palestinians, because what I saw as um, a solution just wasn't there. Um, yeah, I think uh, that's very interesting. Uh, I, as a Palestinian uh, myself, uh, I am very well aware of how we Palestinians have felt that our rights were um, less important than the rights of other people. Um, for so many years, uh, we've been sidelined. Uh, the Palestinian cause has fell off the radar multiple times for so many people. Uh, the injustice that we've endured for years um, is honestly daunting for any human being uh, to think about. So I think it's always refreshing to see uh, people who are not Palestinian, but they recognize how important the plight of the Palestinian people is and you know work towards this cause. Um, I think it's it's been an amazing experience to work at ICGP uh, for the past two and a half years. I think we've done so much work, uh, even before you know the current events in Gaza. We've worked on so many things. Uh, we've done um, complaints to the special rapporteurs on withholding of bodies um, of deceased Palestinians. Uh, we've done ICC work and you know uh, submissions to the International Criminal Court regarding journalists. Um, you know the attacks on journalists. Uh, appropriation of property. Uh, there's just been so much work that uh, you know we've done, um, and now we've been working for the past four months on the Gaza Justice Program, um, which is 
it's a lot. We've submitted a dossier to the Metropolitan Police. We're looking into dual nationals. Um, we're keeping up on, you know, we're keeping up with politicians, briefing them on the situation. Um, so yeah, is this um, how you've envisioned ICJP to be two years and a half in the making? Uh, is that what you want it to be? I mean, you've done a great job. <laughs> I mean, honestly, uh, you've done a great job uh, so far. And I say so far because nothing ever happens quick enough for me. I mean, frankly, nothing ever happens. There's not enough hours in the day, not enough days in the week. And the reason why I say that is because when you're in the position that I'm in, when you are dealing with um, the work at the coalface, if you like, and you see, you know, it's kind of like a just under, to make you understand that if I'm happy about where we are, I'm, I'm never going to be happy where we are, I don't think, until we solve the problem, right? But um, in, in, in terms of um, when you see, for when you receive evidence from the ground in Gaza of um, mutilated bodies, people, children that have been ripped to pieces by Israeli bombs, um, white phosphorus injuries on people, in, in, in a way, there's a part of you as a lawyer that's like, wow, you know, I've got the evidence finally. And then and, and you, you have to turn yourself off to what you're seeing. But what I found really interesting recently is it's not when I'm receiving the evidence that it affects you, it's when you're telling people about it later, right? It's kind of like a deep trauma it creates within the people that are working there. And um, that, that trying to stop, the, knowing that this interview that there will be people dying in Gaza is just mind-blowing for me. It's the reason why we're doing this interview so late because, like I said, we haven't got enough hours in the day, I haven't got enough days in the week, and every minute that we lose means literally people are dying, people that look like you, look like me, look like my children, look like my brother and my sister. These aren't just numbers to me, these are actual and, and now they're definitely not numbers because I've met their families, I've met them, I've met people that have been injured, I've met the people that have treated them. Um, you know, that, that, that fact that I've seen that with my own eyes, um, and the fact that I know that I'm effectively wasting time by not doing something um, is really difficult to deal with. So, so in terms of the work that we've done at ICJP and, and the way that we designed it, or I designed it, um, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed at the team and what they've achieved. I feel sorry for the team. You know, they, they work really hard. You guys work really hard. But, I mean, it's easy for me. I, I come in, I say, can you do this? And then I go away. Yeah. And then you guys are like, right. And then I come back a week later and it's like, you've done some amazing things. And, and, and that's really important. So the team we've put together is phenomenal. I know you guys work really hard. I know, and I think people should know this, that um, some of you were working during your holidays in this Gaza Strip. I mean, that, that when I say working during your holidays, I don't mean that you gave up your holidays. I mean, people went on holiday, right? And I couldn't tell that they were away because they were in foreign countries, but the mechanics and the machine of ICGP was working. Commitment, people are working in the evenings. I know that people are texting me in the middle of the night, and obviously I know that I'm responding to them in the middle of the night as well, right? I know we're briefing MPs at 11 o'clock at night, 12 o'clock at night. I know we're talking to victims through, you know, in, on weekends. It just, it, this couldn't have happened without that team. And the work we're doing, one of the most important things about the work that we're doing 
is that we are taking the first step often and doing the work that people want to do but feel either frightened in doing it or don't have the skill set to do it which is understandable i understand both those things and and it's it feels really rewarding to be able to take that first step um to do the work and for others to see that we can do the work and um then copy it right and and, and that's great because you're you're spreading the news to people that um, things are achievable. So, so where we are now, I mean, I wish we were bigger. I, I wish we were bigger. I wish we had more people. I wish we had more resources. Um, there's so much more work to do. And um, that's my only concern is that, I mean, I was talking to somebody in one of the trips I did to the Middle East recently, and they said, oh, you must be phenomenally funded. And I was like, yeah, not really. And I think people don't realize that, that we, we are doing our best, but on a shoestring. Um, and, and the equivalent organizations that are um, working in the opposite side in terms of um, against Palestinian rights is the way to put it, right? And, and I, I, I dispute anybody's working for Israeli rights at the moment. I think they're working against Palestinians. Um, I, think, I think those organizations seem to be very well funded and very well organized. And I wish we had that same infrastructure. Um, but, you know, I think, I think it's important that it's known that we'll continue to do the work the way that we're doing it and we're getting stronger and stronger and actually our access to our own government to politicians in the UK and what's really interesting as a recent development is that I'm getting phone calls from foreign ministries from across the globe that are ringing me and saying can you advise us about this and what do you think about this and can you explain what the ICJ mean ICJ ruling means that that's really good it's not quite where we want it to be, but I can assure you, Daniel, with you working there, we will soon be there. I mean, I think that's the, the least that we can be doing to the people of Gaza, um, you know, every day. Yeah. That's the thing that gets me out of bed and gives me a bit of hope that there's something that I'm taking part on, a part in that is possibly going to create some change. And it's, I'm doing my best and we're all doing our best. Um, going back to, you know, the ICJ you just mentioned, the yeah. International Court of Justice. Uh, last Friday, which is very recent, we've seen um, the court uh, decide on the provisional measures. Um, and, you know, I think everyone thought that the, the case brought by South Africa uh, before the International Court of Justice against Israel for violating its obligations under the Genocide Convention was a historical moment. Um, I think um, no one thought that the rights of the Palestinian people were going to be represented before an international court, the, the world's you know, most supreme international court that there is, um, in the manner um, you know, they had a spectacular team of lawyers that represented the Palestinian people, like they talked about the rights and the violations and everything. Um, and um, I think... Um, you know, after the decision came out, the, the court actually did issue some provisional measures, uh, six to be specific. Uh, but there was a lot of disappointment by Palestinians. Um, and, you know, one of them was myself, just a bit disappointed that the court uh, did not call for a ceasefire or, you know, an end to the military campaign. Uh, however, some others were arguing that, you know, there is no way to... Um, uphold or actually implement the provisional measures that the court had ordered without a ceasefire. So, you know, what are your thoughts on that? You've also been saying that you've been speaking to politicians who are asking for briefings about what the ICJ decision was. So, you know, if you can tell us more about it. 
Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> from from where I am, just the fact that a state triggered the genocide convention in relation to what's happened since the seventh of October, um, in relation to Israel, is is phenomenal in itself. I mean, you can we know that Israel and the United States were lobbying countries across the globe to stop that from happening because they do fear the rule of law and international uh, and, and, and the principles of justice, they do fear that. And they fear that because when you have impunity and you have the ability to do whatever you want and get away with it, the last thing you want and the thing that you're not used to dealing with is the, the mechanics of accountability actually visiting you. And so you see how Israel has dealt with this. And the way it's dealt with it is, I mean, obviously the UNRWA thing, which we'll talk about in a moment, but primarily is to try to spin uh, the most devastating ruling that could have happened practically for Israel as a victory. And you have commentators across the globe and the Twitter sphere, right? Um, talking about how this is a loss for Palestinians, it's a loss for South Africa, it's a loss, um, it's a green light to carry on the war. And it's absolutely not that. So let's just get this into perspective. And, and what I'm gonna do, and, and it's really important, is I'm gonna read bits because um, one of the things that happen is that when you make an assertion about this ICJ ruling, bad faith commentators, including some quite senior bad faith commentators, will try to spin the judgment in a way, or the ruling, in a way that it's n not true. And so the only way to counter that is to read from the judgment itself. The first thing I want to do is I just want to explain what genocide is, and I want to read it from the Genocide Convention. Genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial or religious group. As such, a killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. That's genocide. And when the International Court of Justice talks about that, it doesn't talk about it in those terms. It talks about it as the right of Palestinians to be protected from it. So it talks about the rights. And so when, um, in, in what I'm going to explain to you, when it talks about the rights, it's talking about genocide, but as in the right to be protected from those acts. And that's really important. And, and so just in a, a, of course I wish that one, the ICJ had ruled for a ceasefire. Failing that, a cessation of hostilities with a referral to the Security Council for UN peacekeepers to supervise, which is possible, has happened before. Um, thirdly, um, the provisional measures that we got were really important. And I just want to talk through, and for me, they're great. They, they're great. So I want to explain how this works because lots of people don't understand this and there's lots of doublespeak about it. And even when this interview goes out, people will write, that's wrong. So, you know, a fair bit. It's, it's, a, it's a duty on me, therefore, to explain it properly. And so the first thing that uh, the ICJ had to determine in this application, once South Africa had trigger, triggered the Genocide Convention, which meant 
it asked the ICJ to become seized of the issue and make a ruling as to whether Israel was violating the right of Palestinians to be protected from genocidal acts. That's what they've asked them to do. That decision is a decision that will be made after both parties present evidence at a later date. And so what, what this process right now meant was that what South Africa was saying was that you can't, we can't afford a time between now and one year or two years when you make this final decision because the genocide allegation that we're making is happening right now. So that means people are dying and Israel needs to be stopped in what it's doing right now. And so the court had to go through some... Um, hoops, if you like, to work out whether it was going to agree with that or not. And the first thing it had to do was to decide if it would even accept a claim under the International Court of Justice statute. So step one, will we accept the complaint? And in order to accept the complaint under the uh, statute, it has to determine that there is a dispute between Israel and South Africa. And South Africa said, well, we've asked Israel to stop killing people in the way that they're killing them, and they've not responded properly. And Israel is therefore denying that there's a genocide happening, and they're not going to take these precautions. And therefore, um, there is a dispute. Israel claimed that there wasn't a dispute. Israel claimed that there hadn't been enough time yet for them to respond appropriately. Um, what the ICJ ruled was in favour of South Africa. It ruled that there was a dispute and it dismissed Israel's uh, case on that point or its submission on that point that there was no dispute. <clears throat> that there was no dispute. And that's the first thing that's really important. Then, then so, so that's the first sort of victory, non-victory decision in South Africa's favour. The second decision that the court had to make was whether South Africa as a state had standing to bring the claim at all. So if, for example, it decided that, okay, South Africa might have a claim, might not have a claim, but it didn't have standing, it would have been dismissed. And what, what the ICJ ruled was that Israel is a state party to the Genocide Convention. South Africa is a state party to the Genocide Convention. They've already determined the dispute. As state parties, the correct forum for having this dispute is at the ICJ, and so it accepted that South Africa had standing to bring the case. So interesting and important is that Israel didn't object to that anyway. It didn't bring an argument to say South Africa didn't bring a case. It's, it's inevitable that it would, but I think the ICJ was being very thorough in its ruling, so it made what courts normally do is to go through the building blocks. The next thing that um, South Africa claimed was that the rights that um, Palestinian people, the rights that Palestinian people had to be protected from genocidal acts of Israel needed to be protected. And the only way to do that is to implement provisional measures in that against South Africa. And you wanted a ceasefire, everybody wanted a ceasefire. And any, any sane person would want a ceasefire because it would mean people would stop dying. But one of the issues I think that um, the court had at that point was that it, it had to make its decision workable and binding, and it can only make binding decisions on parties to the proceedings. And the only two parties to the proceedings are uh, South Africa and Israel. And so it may have felt, I don't know, because I can't go inside the minds of the judges, but it may have felt that making such a strong decision may have been unworkable in the first instance. I, I personally think there's a formula that they could have used, um, which amounts to a ceasefire, which is a cessation of hostilities. Now, we know that Hamas, the day before the judgment, had said that they would abide by any order to cease hostilities. Now, they said that. 
Um, of course, Israelis and Israeli supporters would dismiss that. But the point that I'm making is that Hamas had made that public statement. And that's an important public statement. Whether they would abide by it or not is another matter, but that's a statement that they made. Nonetheless, the um, International Court of Justice made, uh, in order to decide whether they were going to make provisional measures, um, they had to go through another test. And the test that they had to go through was twofold. One, that the allegations that South Africa were making, that the rights needed to be protected, i.e. that Israel was committing genocidal acts, had to be plausible, they had to be credible, and they had to be believable. That's not the words, that's me explaining what plausible means, because a lots of people suddenly don't understand what plausible means, right? Um, but if I was to offer somebody a million pounds, and if they drank that glass of water, and you were to tell them as a independent party that's plausible i guarantee you they'll drink the glass of water right they wouldn't say ah well you might not give it me anyway they drink the glass of water so plausible is credible and believable right and so the icj had to work out whether the allegations made by south africa were plausible and it did it found that those allegations were plausible so what that means is in a nutshell that the icj found allegations of genocide to be plausible and and when doing that it outlined the actions that Israel had taken, physical actions. But it also outlined the genocidal remarks made by senior Israeli politicians, which give it, which are the both parts of that, that criminal offence. And so it's very notable that the ICJ went through very carefully and precisely statements made by senior Israeli politicians. Israel had said that you can't rely on those remarks. But the ICJ at this stage, um, in terms of accepting those remarks found that they were plausibly genocidal remarks and then the next bit before the court makes a decision as to whether or not the um it's going to issue provisional measures is it has to look at if it doesn't issue provisional measures whether those rights were irreparably, irreparably damaged and it decided that if it didn't make these those rights would be something that Israel would do and that harm would be irreparable and that's really important because the no court makes court orders lightly they only make them if there's a legal basis for doing it and, and you meet the steps of doing that so I'm going to read three paragraphs out okay from the and I'm going to name the paragraphs so people can look at them in their own time so paragraph 58 of the ICJ, ICJ judgment the court has already found and then it says bracket see paragraph 54 that at least some of the rights asserted by south africa under the genocide convention are plausible let me interpret that for in layman's words that at least some of the allegations of genocidal acts by israel made by south africa under the genocide convention are credible and believable right so that's what that means that's straightforward then, then it referred to paragraph 54, so we'll read paragraph 54. In the court's view, the facts and circumstances mentioned above, and these are the factual circumstances that South Africa alleged. In the court's view, the facts and circumstances mentioned above are sufficient to conclude that at least some of the rights claimed by South Africa and for which it is seeking protection are plausible. This is the case with respect to the right of the Palestinians in Gaza to be protected from acts of genocide and related prohibited acts identified in Article 3 and the right of South Africa to seek Israel's compliance with the latter's obligation under the Convention. So that I don't see how it can be interpreted. I mean, you know, to talk about this in crude ways, winning and losing is a bit crass, right? Really straightforward. The court found that Palestinians 
need to be protected by South Africa, and therefore it was going to make some provisional measures. And I'm just going to read out paragraph 78, it's the last paragraph I'll read out. The court considers that with regard to the situation described above, Israel must, in accordance with its obligations under the Genocide Convention, in relation to Palestinians in Gaza, take all measures within its power to prevent the commission of all acts within scope of Article 2 of this convention. Article 2 is the thing that I read out right at the beginning where it explains what um, genocide is. In particular, killing members of the group, causing serious bodily harm or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, and D, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. The court recalls that these acts fall within the scope of Article 2 of the Convention when they are committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part um, a group as such. And then it goes back to paragraphs 44. So, so that there, the, provi the provisional measures were aimed around Israel preventing its current acts that it considers were credible and believably genocide in order to prevent irreparable harm to the Palestinians. It's really actually quite straightforward. I, I do want to, for fullness and for ensuring that I give a balanced view of this, the International Court of Justice also made an order with regards to hostages. And what it ordered, it, it can't order a party that's not part of um, the proceedings. So it couldn't, in the same way as it couldn't order Hamas to ceasefire. But what it did say is it called on um, the Palestinian groups that had hostages to immediately and unconditionally release those hostages because of course having hostages in this context in international law is a violation of international law. And so you see that, that's the bit where I'm slightly con concerned but I was slightly disappointed if you like because as it can call on Hamas to release hostages it could have ordered a ceasefire on Israel and called on Hamas to respect the ceasefire in the same way, and it didn't do that. Now, what else the court ordered, which is really important, is it allowed, um, it, it conceded South Africa's request for supervision of Israel's actions. And that supervision is for Israel to report in one month as to how it's abided by the provisional measures. So all this, you know, shouting and screaming and pretending that it doesn't really care about the ICJ's ruling and the rest of the world pretending that, or a significant proportion of the West pretending that the ICJ ruling is irrelevant. In one month's time, Israel has to go back to the court and Israel has to explain to the court what it's done to abide by the provisional measures. And that will be a really interesting point because if it fails to uh, comply with the provisional measures, of course the International um, Court of Justice can add further provisional measures. Yes. Um, I think it's really interesting, um, the, the 30 days uh, reporting period that was given uh, to Israel, uh, which we'll talk about in a bit, but also in the uh, past few days we've seen a lot of Israeli politicians come out and you know accuse the ICJ of being biased and you know looking into a political case that it shouldn't have looked into and saying we're not going to really abide by what comes out of the Hague. Uh, but what I think is also interesting is uh, you know giving Israel 30 days to report back uh, we've 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 seen hostilities you know continue we've seen uh israel's actions on the ground uh, persist um there hasn't been a change or a shift in their actions and what i think is more interesting is that we've seen as well after the icj decision on that um, what has happened to the honor for example 
uh, we've seen um, in the past few days uh, a number of countries pause their funding uh, to UNRWA on the basis of Israeli allegations um, made against uh, some UNRWA employees. Um, and, you know, with no regard uh, for UNRWA being uh, the lifeline, the humanitarian lifeline of um, to over 2 million Palestinians, employing 13,000 Palestinians who, mm-hmm. you know, rely on um, their salaries and, uh, you know, this is their, their livelihoods. Um, so you posted a tweet on that as well, uh, which connected um, what has happened, uh, the defunding of the UNRWA that is currently taking place by some countries and the ICJ decision. And I'm going to read your tweet, quoting you here, so you can like elaborate on it. You've said, uh, defunding UNRWA at this point is likely to be breach of the Genocide Convention in its own right, unless states provide direct aid to alleviate the, human, the humanitarian crisis. Um, can you tell us more about that? Well, <clears throat> I mean, I'd like to add to that, that defunding UNRWA at this point is inhumane and it's immoral. Um, I think, in my view, that it's potentially a criminal act, collective punishment potentially, um, and I say collective punishment potentially um, because the action taken punishes the Palestinian people as a whole in Gaza. Um, now, collective punishment is an unusual criminal offence in international humanitarian law in that the Rome Statute of the ICC doesn't consider it a prosecutable offence, but the offences within it are, so that's really important. And even in the United Kingdom, we don't have universal jurisdiction for collective punishment. Again, we have jurisdiction for the offences within it. So so collective punishment is, yeah, it's, it's a very clear example of collective punishment. But it also could potentially be a primary act of genocide in, in, in one way, or at least complicity in genocide. And I say that in this way. If, if you are a state and you look at the court that you are a party to, by the way, because you are, like the United Kingdom, is um, party to the uh, United Nations Charter and thereby the ICJ, uh, International Court of Justice Statute, um, if, if you're a state and you're, you're looking at the highest court in the world and it makes a provisional measure order where it states that um, the rights of the Palestinians need to be protected in international law, that, that in its own right should trigger your own state uh, obligations of the Genocide Act because if you're a part of the Genocide Act, you're meant to protect people from uh, genocide. But, but you're, you're then taking an action which could speed up, accelerate death and suffering on the ground um, in concert with the primary perpetrator of those alleged genocidal acts. Um, I, can't see, I can't see how that in any way would um, remove secondary party or even potentially primary party liability from those states having been on, put on notice, not, not put on notice by you, Daniel, as a legal officer of ICJP or by me as some lawyer in London who, who happens to be, oh, this is their specialist area, right? But put on notice by an independent court Um, which included an Israeli judge, by the way, who didn't disagree with every provisional measure, as we've seen, right? Um, And so you've got to wonder what's going through the minds of the decision makers. Um, And it occurred to me, right, that 
one of the things that might be going through the decision maker's mind is, um, I mean, for me, what the list of countries that have defunded uh, UNRWA is, is a list of potential suspects to investigate in war crimes. Because are, what, are they actually objecting to UNRWA? Or are they actually trying to tell the International Court of Justice there are, and the United Nations there are consequences for your actions, including funding, because we are significant donors to the rules-based international system that we helped create, and we own it. And if you don't play by our rules, then we'll defund it. But even worse than that, is it because they're worried about being held complicit in the actions that the ICJ is already investigating? Now, if I was um, an intervening state or even South Africa, I would give serious thought to triggering um, Article 63 of the International Court of Justice statute, which um, allows the registrar of the ICJ to put on notice other states that are uh, need to become parties to the ICJ proceedings because there is in, there is in some way a, a need to make the orders of the ICJ binding on them. And um, I would say that um, I would be advising states that are looking at intervening to consider making the United States, the United Kingdom, Japan, um, the, Germany, the other countries that are defunding UNRWA, parties to those proceedings for defunding. And, and, and lots of people have said, you know, we shouldn't, what, why should we pay money for, it, it's, you, you can't have it both ways, right? Why should the United Kingdom, why should the United States pay money to UNRWA? You can't create an international uh, accountability structure that you agree is so important to do because six million people died in, six million Jews died in World War Two, and we needed to create a system to prevent that from happening again. And then when it kind of points its finger at you, you decide that you don't want to play that game. And what's really interesting is that the countries that are defunding UNRWA is only a small number of countries. And it does give an opportunity for other countries to you know, step up and say, okay, yeah, okay, you're not going to fund it and we're going to fund it. But there's also something else which is really concerning me about this. And, and that's that you have these, you, you know, the timing is almost ridiculous. You have the ICJ ruling and then you have Israel going, oh, guess what? We just suddenly discovered that um, 12 people that were part of UNRWA are terrorists. Even taking that allegation at its highest, even if that's true, which I don't know if it is true, and I haven't seen the evidence to say it is, I have scepticism about that allegation, frankly. But even if it is true, and let's take it at its highest, how, how does that justify defunding the entire of the UNRWA operation, which operates not just in Palestine, but also in, in other states around, around, around um, the uh, region that protect Palestinian refugees? That doesn't make sense in its own right. And if you're going to talk about credibly taking a step to defund an organization or a state, you're talking about a allegation made by a country that is plausibly uh, involved in genocidal acts. An allegation made by that state, which funnily enough happens to protect its ambition, compared to an allegation made by an independent court with judges across 15 different countries um, who have decided that there is plausible genocide, but you don't see the same action in the slightest, not even a step towards um, defunding or sanctioning or calling Israel to account for that.
Now, if you wanted to ask me whether I thought um, the defunding of UNRWA was uh, genuine and credible, I'd say, well, let's point to this other side. If they had decided, frankly, to defund UNRWA and stop funding and sending weapons to the alleged perpetrator of genocide and war crimes, I might give it some credibility and I might think, okay, maybe there's some reason for you doing this, but I don't accept that, particularly to do it before an investigation has been concluded. I mean, I, I saw a report today that I think it was Blinken saying, we haven't looked at the evidence yet. We just listened to what Israel had to say. Well, you know, that's just cynical and ridiculous. I'm really disappointed uh, at the states for, for taking this step. Really disappointed. Yeah, I think everyone is disappointed. Um, so many interesting points to draw from, you know, what you've said. Um, defunding UNRWA is highly immoral at a point where millions of Gazans have just been recently displaced as well. Taking that into consideration makes it outrageous. Um, and I think a very interesting point that you've said, which that it might amount to collective punishment, um, I think that point was also echoed by Norway uh, in a statement issued uh, within the past uh, 24 hours, I think, yeah. uh, stating that they won't pause their um, funding for UNRWA at this point, um, and that you know they believe that defunding of UNRWA might amount to collective punishment of the entirety of the Palestinian population that relies primarily on UNRWA for food, for money, uh, for humanitarian aid, all of that. Um, but I think another important point that you've mentioned, um, speaking about UNRWA, a word that you you know you kept going back to is complicity, and I think one of the interesting things that we've uh, the most interesting ideas that we've had at ICGP straight at the beginning, you know after the this entire um, this really military campaign started in Gaza was to uh, send letters to. Um, politicians putting them on notice uh, for their possible complicity in alleged war crimes and crimes against humanity. Um, and we've just submitted a dossier quite recently to the Metropol Metropolitan Police. We've named some MPs uh, that we believe uh, might be complicit in the alleged war crimes uh, that we're referring to in our dossier of evidence. Um, and I think it also ties um, very much with um, our principle at uh, ICJP, which we always talk about, which is where our politicians fail to uphold the rule of law, our course, our courts must, you know, intervene to administer justice. So you keep talking about complicity. Can we talk more about that? What it means? Um, yeah, I, I think I think in terms of um, sort of a mistake, I think in my own practice historically when I've been addressing war crimes or crimes against humanity across the globe, not just in Palestine, Israel, elsewhere, is to fall into the trap of letting the powerful determine the um, battlefield, right? And so, I mean, I, I found it really like, I've always found this interesting that when um, the United Kingdom might invade or the United States might invade a third country or another country, um, when when that country retaliates, the retaliation is named terrorism, right? I find that really an interesting concept. And then one of the things that fictions we've created, I mean, first of all, let me make this really clear. Um, I, I, I don't like violence. I don't like death. 
um, primary reason for being involved in this kind of work is to stop harm and stop people dying. That's like at the core of what I believe. Um, and, and that's that's all, that, it doesn't matter who that person is. It doesn't matter if they're even a bad person or a good person or uh, whatever complexion they are, whatever religion they are. I don't like people being hurt or dying. I think there's other ways that we deal with things like this. I even stand against the death penalty when a court of law has imposed it. And I have cases that I'm working on at the moment in regards to that. So, so w w w one of the fictions that I think has been created is um, that if we bomb a country and they decide to attack us on our mainland, that's terrorism, but not an act of war. And we arrest and prosecute and convict those people, but we don't keep them as prisoners of war. And I, I found this like uh, kind of a, a strange modern development of warfare, um, when in actual fact, the, you could look at those people as being soldiers from a different uh, army fighting back and and one of the questions that like a sort of theoretical question is that if you have two soldiers fighting in a country and one is the, the the our ally our our soldier is fighting that one and he puts down his he runs out of bullets and then he chases him back and they get in a plane and they fly away and he's still chasing him he lands in london suddenly it's not a battlefield suddenly it's terrorism and the person will be arrested and prosecuted it's kind of this weird fake fiction phenomenon that we've developed and 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 we as lawyers have fallen into this trap generally so we've got things like guantanamo bay enemy combatants we've got all these new sort of fangled definitions of how we want to execute imperialism or colonialism or fight for our interests and steal people's oils and we kind of wait, create weird and wonderful ways of doing it and the mistake is we've always just um legally held accountable the primary perpetrators right and then i was dealing with a case for somebody and he was um tortured um and we found the torturer right we found who the torturer was a soldier level torturer i don't want to talk about the who what this case is because it's confidential but we found the torturer and when i said to the client my client i said look we found the person that did this the authorities have found the person that did this and um, and i'm just interested in what submissions we should make about what should happen to him and he said nothing he said i don't want anything to happen to the person that beat me i was like well, why not he goes because it wasn't his fault yeah he did something wrong but i want the guy that told him to do it right and that was like an awakening moment for me i was like that's a good point right command control responsibility we call it and what we've done is we've allowed politicians to fall away and so you have politicians that execute wars right they do their time in tony blair a good example as somebody who's executed a war um, moves away from that war because they've left office and suddenly they're just a bloke that's going around the world making millions of pounds for wherever they want to make in whatever hedge fund or government advisory and everybody's cool with that and i don't think that's right i think that it's time to start to understand that the problem doesn't come from the soldiers. I have a lot of respect for soldiers. I personally know a lot of soldiers or former soldiers. Um, and I think that they're often very good at what they do. They're very brave. They have to do difficult things in difficult times. Um, and um, often when I talk to soldiers that I know, 
their understanding of what they've been asked to do and why they've been asked to do it to different things. A soldier does what they're told. They don't often understand the political master telling them what to do, but then they look at their generals, the commanding officer giving the command, but the general looks at a politician who finds it so easy often to send their soldiers to fly a plane over someone else's country, or even, even though their own country in some cases, and drop bombs and kill people. And they sit in their little house and at the end of their political period, they go off and use that political period to go and have a really comfortable life. But really what they've done is they, and, and I know people don't like this, but, and I'm not talking about this Palestine-Israel issue only, I'm talking about generally, these politicians are the ones that are making the decisions and have the blood on their hands. And we've never really held them accountable for anything. And I think that is something I wanted to change. And so when um, October the 7th happened, and we saw um, politicians unequivocally support Israeli action. And we in the ICJP saw what that might look like and we saw what that did look like in the first few days. Um, and we saw that our politicians were just comfortable in saying, yeah, cool, go and bomb loads of people that are in a different country that we don't care about, right? I didn't like the sound of that. And we didn't like the sound of that. And so we wrote those letters and we explained. I mean, we were quite generous, to be honest, because what we did, which people don't know necessarily, is that we first wrote private letters, if you remember, right? And I sent text messages to people. What the hell are you saying? Do you not realize what the law says? You know, to politicians that we have relationships with. And um, we had silence. You know, we were engaging with politicians on this issue quite a lot. And then suddenly they just went silent. And then we made a decision over that particular weekend, I think it was the first weekend, that we would send public letters. And there was two reasons for that. One was we wanted to call them out publicly and we wanted to explain to them, look, we're going to tell you, I mean, when I say publicly, I mean, we published our letters. We wanted to explain to them the law that we were using to explain to politicians why they were complicit under Article 25 of the Rome Statute if they aided and abetted or in any other way supported war crimes. That was really important. Um, and we did notice immediately within the same day the rhetoric change, right? So they became frightened about the fact that suddenly their necks were on the line, their personal necks were on the line. But it wasn't enough, right? It was almost like me saying to Hamas, hey guys, Hamas, you know, we know that you're a terrorist organization and all that, but when you go and do your terroristy stuff, right, can you kind of do it in accordance with international law? It was just nonsense. That's not how you tell an organization not to commit an act of terrorism. You say, you stop doing that, any support we're giving you, we're gonna stop, you do it and we're gonna hold you accountable for it. That's what they should have started to say to Israel. You stop doing your action, we can see what it is, if you don't stop doing it, we're going to stop supplying you with weapons and support. And if you don't stop, then we're going to hold you accountable. That's what it would take to actually be meaningful. So they didn't do that. Um, but what, the reason we, second reason we published those letters is because we wanted everybody else in the world to know. And, you know, really, thankfully, lots of lawyers across the globe picked up on the letters that we wrote and they replicated them. And it was an amazing thing because we started a movement of holding politicians accountable. Um, I mean, I don't know whether other people realize we started the movement, it doesn't really matter, but I'm really proud of what we did. And, and lots of people took this information and took this knowledge and started doing it in its own jurisdiction. And you know, and um, without us talking about it, apart from Canada, which is public, we're working with lawyers in different jurisdictions privately to help them to support their cases. And, and, and that, that's what I mean by this. And I personally, don't think it's right that a politician can spend their time in government 
um, and then finish that job and think that they can forget about what they've done and what they've been responsible for. And we're talking about life and death of human beings. I think this is more important than a political career or even a financial career that they go to afterwards. And so what we did, we determined to do is we determined, as you know, to make sure that we would make these allegations front and centre to politicians. And then if they didn't desist in what they were doing and we had evidence of them continuing and we saw that there's evidence of aiding and abetting under Article 25 of the Rome Statute, which is the ICC statute, we would actually make complaints, criminal complaints to Scotland Yard about them and we've done that. So you said MPs, I want to make that clear, it's four ministers, government ministers. Um, and that's really important because these are decision makers. I'm going to not identify who they are because I don't want to bring hate on anybody. I, I want them to go to prison, absolutely. I don't want them to be hated by the public until there's been a judgment because we do things through law and legal process. So we're talking about people that are giving moral and political cover for war crimes, okay? What, why that's a crime is because if a person is committing a genocidal act or a war crime or a crime against humanity, and another actor, a powerful actor, is saying, hey, that's cool, that's allowed, that's self-defense, that's um, executing a war against a terrorist organization, but can see that they're killing thousands of people, tens of thousands of people at the same time, then that's giving moral and political cover for it. That's aiding and abetting. If you look at that in a terrorist context, you have people prosecuted and arrested and interviewed for supporting Hamas. It's no different. It's the same principle. So supporting a terrorist organization is de facto a criminal offense. Supporting a war crime is de facto a criminal offense. And so we've got that support, but we've got a bit more than that. We've got states, not just the United Kingdom, but the United Kingdom is where we're focusing, obviously, um, who are supplying material assistance to criminals, alleged criminals, who are committing alleged war crimes. And that is a really serious crime because you're facilitating that crime. Now, you can be providing military assistance by sending planes over to scan the ground using satellite imaging. You can be sending bombs, you can be sending weaponry, or you can be sending material that supports it. But this is a much more clear situation. And so we looked at the, in ICGP, we looked at the infrastructure of the people that were actually sending um, or, or making the decisions to supply weapons. And those people will be subject to our, our subject of our complaint. Yeah, I think this is uh, this was one of the m important uh, streams of our work uh, during the past four months as well, yeah. uh, and even before. I mean, uh, ICGP supported Glan and Al Haq in their um, submission um, in their judicial review for the Secretary uh, of State for Trade. Um, and I think it was important because this time uh, we were taking the step in telling politicians you, you can't be too comfortable. You're not going to be off the hook for just you know what, doing what you want or saying what you want. Um, your words now have consequences. Um, and I know we submitted a complaint, but you know, and would like to see uh, justice and accountability take place. But do you think that there is, um, you know, from your your own knowledge, like precedents of cases where politicians have been held accountable for their moral or materials. I, I, I think I think I think I'm going to answer your question in a different way. Okay, um, I think I think if if the uh, international rules-based order, rules-based order, not just international order, yeah. rules-based order worked, I think you wouldn't need organisations like ICJP. It doesn't work. Okay, it just doesn't work. And it doesn't work because it's been dominated by Western powerful states that use it to 
uh, in their own interests. And so when you're working downstream in the interests of those states, so you effectively want to prosecute Russian war criminals, oh my God, it's so easy. Suddenly you can um, find the evidence, you can arrest Russian alleged war criminals, you can prosecute them, you can convict them in a war zone during a war and the ICC comes out and um, blows a big trumpet and goes and helps prosecutors in a war zone, right? It can happen when it's in the interest of these states. When it's upstream, it's much harder, as, you, as we can see. Um, and, and I, by the way, I'm going to go on record and say I think Karim Khan will issue arrest warrants for Israeli war criminals because if he doesn't, then that institution is ended, as far as I can see. People, it will not have credibility on the face of this earth ever again. And I can't see any other way for that institution to exist. So I, I'm pretty sure, just on that basis, that it will do that job properly. Now, um, it's hard for him because he's working against the interests of the people that dominate, dominate this. So but I, th I think he'll eventually get there. Um, but you see, the, the miscalculation made by politicians, it's, it's really easy to do. When, you, when you're in, well, I'm from Yorkshire, right? And I always, people say, you're always going about Yorkshire. I'm from Yorkshire. When you're in Yorkshire, Yorkshire is the most important place on earth, right? Because nothing else matters. I mean, Yorkshire is the most important place on earth. That will always remain true, right? But but when you're there, that's what's important. So Yorkshire people historically fought Lancashire people, right? When you're in England, England becomes the most important place. And it's really easy to think that your entire worldview is the same as everybody else's in your country or in your political class. And you, you just think, well, that's what the whole world thinks. But we're seeing something really different happen. We've seen it happen, something different happen in terms of international geopolitics over the last couple of years. You've seen a shift. Right? You've seen Russia start to become a bit more strident in, in its uh, external foreign policy and in terms of its, its, its war policy even. You've seen rise of China. You've seen rise of India. You've seen rise of southern states. You've seen the legal strength of South Africa. First of all, it beats uh, I was going to swear, but beats the hell out of um, uh, apartheid and destroys that in its own country. And it has problems it's dealing with. That's fine. It's developing. Give it a bit of time to work these issues out. And now it's said, well, hang on a minute. What, the, what are you talking about? We we use the uh, rule of law and principles of justice to beat apartheid. And all you countries that were preaching this didn't do it to help us in the way that we wanted you to. We're not going to stand back and not do that. So they're doing this. So the miscalculation made is that if the... ICC doesn't do its job. It's a mistake to think that a politician in London that's feeling very comfortable right now might not be the subject of a arrest warrant in a global South country or even a European country because we know not all European countries are on in that same playbook because the United States and the United Kingdom and those other nine or nine or eight or nine countries that are, are defunding UNRWA. Um, so you might, they might end up finding themselves on their summer holidays in Spain on a beach suddenly having handcuffs put around their wrists. They might be travelling on a business trip to the Middle East and suddenly a country, um, I'm not spoken to a few countries in the Middle East, that are interested in taking legal advice from us about strengthening their war crimes criminal code, for example. They might find they have uh, handcuffs around them. They might be on a business trip to South Africa or some other state and, and have handcuffs on them. It'll take one country 
one country to issue a domestic arrest warrant for suspected war criminals and issue that arrest warrant through Interpol, red notices, or a dispersal order, for every treaty member of Interpol to then be obliged to arrest that politician anywhere in the world. And do you know what? I'm proud to say that's my objective. And it, the reason I'm proud to say it, and people think of this as like, oh my God, you're going against your own country. I, by doing this, Right, I'm making this country stronger and better. You know, if if the argument is that I'm being unpatriotic because I'm attacking um, politicians that have strayed so badly, you know, committing uh, potentially genocide and war crimes, British politicians being complicit in that. If I'm straying so badly, then that argument goes to every single parent that's ever chastised a child. Why do you tell your kid off? when he wants to run across the road or put his hand in a fire, it's because you don't want them to hurt themselves. You want them to be better. You want them to understand. The kid doesn't understand that, right? But you're trying to make the child better. It's, it's not a bad parent that tells their child off or tries to put them on the right track. It's a good parent. And in this way, as good citizens, patriotic citizens, we don't want this country, my country, the United Kingdom, to be stolen by bad politicians. We don't want British values to be stolen by them or to be redefined in some weird, selfish, criminal manner. So it's a, it's a, it's a, what, what we're doing, Dania, is a real act of patriotism. And I think once people in the United Kingdom understand that, once people here understand that, they will they will support that and that's why you're finding and we're finding that the bbc itv channel 4 even the mainstream media agencies are suppressing all of this news because they don't want people to understand it but it's really good that organizations like and, and journalists who are attached to palestinian deep dive are able to expose what the truth is because we now know that a significant um, segment of our population, probably most of our population, get their news from social media so they can hear it directly for themselves and make their own decisions. Yes, um, I think that's uh, that's very interesting and it goes also to another tweet that you tweeted. Uh, <laughs> tweet too much, for Alexander. Right? Uh, yes, uh, but it's all important you, things. You just say yes, I tweet too much. <laughs> no, I think, it, yeah, well, yeah, I did, but you know. Yeah. Um, I think um, it was about the uh, interference with media outlets and um, your tweet said, and I quote, journalists from um, some mainstream media outlets have shared their concerns about a toxic atmosphere that suppresses stories that show the situation in Gaza from a Palestinian perspective, while those that advocate the Isra the Israeli position are being amplified. Can we talk more about that? You have any knowledge? Yeah, so you we need to discuss names, but you know. Danny, you know this is an active investigation of ours, and and what I was really surprised about, I was genuinely surprised about. So, we had this situation where one of our witnesses was being deplatformed by the mainstream media, and a journalist. You know this thing when people say mainstream media, I used to find that quite boring and like nonsense. Where I was thinking, really, like, you, you, you it's bias, is it really? Because I, I used to get all my news, and still get quite a lot of my news from the mainstream media although with a massive barrel of salt, not just a pinch anymore. Um, and, and so like um, a journalist showed me some emails um, from inside of what's supposed to be a credible organization, um, which really concerned me about unfair bias and deplatforming a significant individual. 
And I thought, my God, these are like official, this is official. This is not like, this, and it's not even hidden. And that's what made me surprised even more that it was like, it's become so commonplace, this sort of harassment and bullying within this organization that it wasn't even like a secret word like you'd imagine, you know, it was just like plain simple. And it, then it occurred to me, is this because the editors, the journalists, the senior journalists, the people, it, they think this is how you do it? And this is the thing this is what you're supposed to do so i put a tweet out to see what would happen um based on that conversation with that journalist um to see if anybody else had this experience across any other media organizations and immediately i mean immediately people started to contact me and they are contacting me and the depth of information that i'm receiving and the type of information is mind-blowing. I mean, it's mind-blowing. I don't really want to talk about what it is. Um, I, I, I will say that my suspicion has been um, supported that uh, Palestinian advocates, just call them that, talking heads I call them, you know, people that go on to talk on the news, um, are being suppressed. Um, they're being deplatformed. Um, there is a toxic culture in a number of agencies. People are, have said to me that they have to huddle in corners to talk about it from the Palestinian side. When people raise complaints, they, sub they become subject to disciplinaries. But what the difference is with this, and really interesting is because my subject matter is journalists, and journalists are really good when they're allowed to do their job. You know, we protect journalists in some of our cases. And we protect journalists because we think that they are a fundamental cornerstone of a democracy. They're the people that highlight things that go wrong to the public so that the public understand what's going wrong. I mean, they work in war zones, they work against dictators in, in, in autocratic states, they go undercover. I mean, journalists, when they do their job, phenomenal. But when they're being stopped from doing their job, not so phenomenal. But what's really interesting is they still keep the information. They still have the emails, they still have the records, they have the policies. And what I'm finding is a significant number of journalists are not only coming forward and prepared to tell me their story on record, they've also got the evidence to back it up. So they've got names, dates, places, who, what, when, where, how, right? Um, and, and that is really new. And so what we're doing, as you know, in ICTP, we'll be gathering more of this evidence. I mean, the problem is I can't keep up with the number of people coming forward. Um, but once we've got this information together, we will prepare a report and we'll publish it. Yeah, and I think it's very important to understand that it's not just politicians or the people directly involved in uh, committing war crimes or genocide that might be held to account. Also, uh, media uh, agencies and outlets might be complicit in, in the, the commission of these crimes by um, the, taking part in these actions and, you know, um, highlighting one part and then, um, you know, there's, there's lots of case law on the Rwanda genocide and the and the, the role that the media played in, in, in the Rwanda genocide. Um, and, and I think whether it's the same or more subtle, mm -hmm. I think, I mean, you know, we, we've done part one of our criminal complaint to Scotland Yard, which is to do with Israeli generals and Israeli politicians, British citizens that have um, travelled out to join the IDF. And, and potentially committed war crime, and and thirdly, British ministers. But then, a part two of our investigation that we're undergoing at the moment and preparing for Scotland Yard is commentators that aid and abet, and this includes journalists, um, people on social media, social media agencies themselves that are in some way aiding and abetting alleged war crimes or the allegation of genocide. So that 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 we're investigating too.
Um, yes, going to the IDF, um, British nationals joining the IDF. Um, you know, since October the 7th, we have seen multiple cases, so many cases. Uh, we've documented so many of them at ICJP as well. We've collected so much information about individuals uh, flying to Israel to take part in the IDF, in the operation uh, in Gaza. We've seen IDF, we've seen some of these British nationals post uh, on their social media platforms uh, from inside of Gaza, boasting about the the actions that they've committed in Gaza and that, yeah. you know, they're there and they're not going to leave. Um, and we've included that in our uh, complaint to the Metropolitan Police. But what can, you know, what is to be done about that? So, I mean, it, it goes without saying, it doesn't matter who the person is, if, if a person has traveled from here to um, Israel to participate in uh, any kind of action that results in them participating in war crimes, that's something that Scotland Yard should investigate. I'm pretty confident we'll investigate. And um, if they've participated in a war crime, then they'll be prosecuted for that. So that's one element. But there's another really important element. Um, when British citizens were travelling out to the Ukraine to fight with the Ukrainians, um, politicians in the UK, first of all, said, yeah, great, go ahead and go and do it, and then realised very quickly that that would be potentially a criminal offence. And so the Foreign Office issued guidance, the FCDO issued guidance, that um, any British citizen travelling abroad that returns from fighting in the Ukraine may be committing, uh, may be prosecuted, investigated and prosecuted. And um, what, what we did at ICJP is we wrote to government and we said, well, what's the situation for, if, if you can't go and join the Ukrainians, can you go join the IDF? Because we became aware that a significant number of people, hundreds if not thousands, were joining the um, IDF. And uh, the government hasn't responded. You know, usually when the government responds, because it hasn't got an answer, right? It doesn't have an answer that it wants to give you, at least. Um, so, so another thing happened in 2014 where people um, asked the same question of parliamentarians and I think the Ministry of Defence or a spokesperson for government said that it's okay if you're a dual national to go and fight. This is below war crimes, this is if you haven't committed a war crime, it's just the principle of going and fighting for a foreign state. Um, if, you haven't come, if you're a dual national you can go and do it, if you're a conscription you can go do it. But the problem with that principle is that um, you have something called the Foreign Enlistment Act. And the Foreign Enlistment Act doesn't say what government says. It says something quite different. So first of all, if you travel from the United Kingdom to join a foreign army, and you that foreign army is in conflict or in a war with a state, a foreign state is the word, foreign state, that is at peace with the United Kingdom, that's a criminal offence, unless the king has given you a licence to go do it. Okay, So that that guidance from the Crown Prosecution Service and the government is not right. Because what they're saying is that Palestine is not a state. That's what they're saying. But the problem is that the Foreign Enlistment Act doesn't define foreign state in the way that it claims it defines it. It defines it as um, a foreign state, a prince, meaning a principality, i.e. Uh, the embodiment of a state inside a person, or a group of people that have authority over themselves. Now, the Palestinians have a, a group of people that have authority over themselves. Notwithstanding that, 
PA, Palestinian Authority, rule over a state, which is Gaza, West Bank, and Jerusalem. So my view is that that comes within the definition of the state. And so, as you know, we're preparing a further criminal complaint with regards to those people that breached the Fraud Enlistment Act. And the reason we're doing this is because we want clarity in law. So we want the court to make the determination where the politicians are failing to explain to us what's happening. And why is this important, Daniel? The reason this is important is a number of reasons. First of all, if an Israeli is allowed to go and fight in um, Israel against Palestinians, does that mean a Palestinian is allowed to go to Palestine and fight against Israelis in Palestine? Is that what is that what government is saying? It's okay to do that, and I'm okay. Of course, it's not okay to do that um, for Hamas because Hamas is a prescribed terrorist organization. So supporting or joining or being a member of it is prescribed. But there are other Palestinian resistance movements in Palestine that are not prescribed. Would it be okay to join them? And notwithstanding that, what about if you go and join the Yemeni? Uh, army, or you go join the Lebanese army, or you go join the Syrian army, or what if you go join the Iranian army? And so are we going to have a situation where the United Kingdom's policy is to allow British citizens from various different communities to go across the world to fight to the death in a battle and then they think they're just going to stop that battle, come home, and everything's going to be really fine between them all at home. It's going to cause massive, a massive breakdown in community cohesion. In a situation where we know anti-Semitism is rising already in the United Kingdom, you don't want to add fuel to a situation where you're taking, sending people out, becoming trained and prepared to actually commit acts of serious violence and come back and bring that home import that home and when, when we um when when boris johnson found that um the scotland yard had expanded its investigation from just israel alone to palestine one of the things he said a bit sillily right was we don't want um to export foreign conflicts home i agree with that and so the, the police investigating war crimes abroad is not importing foreign conflicts home. That's the police doing their obligation, statutory obligation, to investigate war crimes. But allowing British citizens to go to a foreign country and join a foreign conflict that has really nothing to do with us militarily and then return home is absolutely importing a foreign conflict. And, and this is why this is so dangerous. And it's disappointing Dania that our politicians are so rubbish right I mean so rubbish that they can't see this and work this out for themselves yeah and I think that's where you know asking the court to rule on that and clarify what the law says comes in and it's very important um, and on that let's go back uh, a little bit um, we've talked about the um, uh, arms exports to Israel uh, we know that uh, Al Haq land, supported by SCJP, uh, submitted a judicial review uh, f uh, for the Secretary of State uh, for Trade, um, and we know we've been talking about domestic complicity um, just a while ago. Um, and one of the major things that the UK government has done in that respect is continuing arms exports to uh, Israel, and in particular, even though it was under the remit of the Department of for Business and Trade, released documents have shown that the Foreign Secretary was involved in the decision-making process. Well, I mean, this, this boils down to um, 
political complicity is that word that you like so much complicity or I like so much um, we're not in a situation now where it's just simply the judicial review that's the judicial review is important the Al-Haqlan binding judicial review it's very important because that's looking at the export license framework and deciding whether that's been applied or not and and it seems to me pretty clear that it's not been applied properly and that's what the judicial review is about for a court to determine in due course but what's more concerning now is that you have look, look at that process in the context of the international court of justice's ruling that genocide is plausible continuing to do that continuing to supply weapons even one more weapon you need you don't, you don't get a chance of like oh well, i will stop in three weeks you stop immediately yeah. not reviewing that decision not suspending those weapons not taking that action is potentially a criminal act interestingly if you wanted me to give you a parallel comparison of how important the urgency is from the point of the allegation to the point of action look at the defunding of UNRWA it was allegation immediate defunding right so why not the same principles apply and and for me i will happily march along with a police officer into the foreign office and point out the people that i think may be complicit in potential war crimes and what's sad here is that this is not so so like what do i personally think about these politicians so having known them talked to them sat with them listened to them it's what I said to you right in the beginning about my own view, is that I can see in their minds they know it's wrong. I can see in their hearts they know it's wrong. But something, political ambition, money, pressure, from whatever quarter, is making them do something that they don't believe in. You can see it in the hollowness of their faces when they're speaking. They don't want to do this. I don't believe for a minute that these politicians, I mean, I named them, you know, even Keir Starmer, uh, Rishi Sunak, I don't believe for a minute, uh, James Cleverly, David Levin, I don't believe for a minute that they believe in what they're doing is right. For some reason, they're going down this course, and I'm hoping that that critical mass point comes for them, that awakening, that realisation point comes for them when they actually think, flipping heck, you know, what have we done? This isn't right. When that awakening point comes from them, is important for them. What I hope doesn't happen is what happens in autocratic regimes, including regimes in World War II. I'm not making a comparison to Nazis or anything like that, but what happens when sometimes in a criminal enterprise, when you've done something wrong, particularly autocratic states, is in order to, rather than admit what you've done is wrong and, and pull yourself out of it, you compound the error and you bring other people into that complicity with you so that together you can all carry on without feeling the blame or being held responsible. And I hope we don't get to that point. We're not quite there yet, but we're soon in a position where the only answer will be proper accountability before the law. And, and I think I should say this to you as well because I kind of skirted around this. Lots of people will say to me, you, you, I mean, people say to me all the time, you're a great believer in this rule of law process. And I am, because what else do we have? You know, we don't have an army, and I don't want there to be an army that goes and fixes this problem. I want it to be a legal, political solution. Um, and, and in the UK, you know, you're, you're fighting with British courts, British police officers against British government. Do you think they're going to do anything? This is much more profound than that. If 
Scotland Yard decide not to continue their investigation appropriately where there is evidence, where that evidence will then, and, and let's say for example, even if Scotland Yard, as they've done in previous cases of mine, decide to take action and the government interferes with it. So for example, for a war crimes prosecution, the Attorney General has to consent. Let's say the Attorney General withholds a consent and blocks that accountability process in the United Kingdom. You would think that's it. But because of our treaty obligations, because international law fits above the United Kingdom, what that means is actually the Attorney General potentially is committing a war crime by covering war crimes. And what that then means is that the International Criminal Court can prosecute the United Kingdom for failing to um, meet its obligations of the International Criminal Court Act, which is a British act. And more than that, it means these third countries that have the complaint can also prosecute domestically. And, and people say, well, that'll never happen, but it did happen because when people were accusing British soldiers of war crimes um, and the United Kingdom failed in its international criminal court duty to investigate those war crimes, the United Kingdom was referred to the ICC for that failure, and the ICC opened an investigation, an examination, it's called, not an investigation, opened an examination into the UK's failure, and the UK suddenly thought, oh God, we've made a bit of a mistake here, and opened up an investigation into allegations of war crimes against British soldiers. And so, you know, I am confident that we can do something, and things have happened before, um, and, and, you know, there's you now, and uh, the ICJP, so you can make sure that happens. Uh, hope so. I mean, we're always going to work until we can uphold accountability and the rule of law. Uh, and I think that brings us to another important point that we've discussed actually very extensively at the beginning uh, of, um, you know, very early on, uh, on the 7th of October and 8th of October, when we uh, started seeing what was unfolding on the ground. And then at some point we were like, you know what, we need to do what we need to do. And it's repercussions for this kind of work uh, that we've been doing. I mean, you know, um, everyone, uh, each one of us has something uh, that, you know, they might lose uh, in this uh, course of work. Some people are scared to actually speak about things. But I think we at ICGP decided that we're going to do whatever we can. Um, and, and, and we know that the climate in, in the UK and in some other European countries isn't very helpful in that sense. So um, not just towards ICGP, but towards other activists and other organizations working in the field. So, yeah, do you want to talk about your experience on that? Well, I mean, more than my experience, I mean, we, we see it happen all the time. We see um, the Ukrainian flag flying everywhere all over the United Kingdom still um, in support of Ukraine. As soon as the Palestinian flag is flown in the same way, you get accused of it being uh, somehow a hate crime. Uh, you, you see... Um, people that are on social media, in businesses, um, in the media, in their professional lives, being attacked for being pro-Palestinian. It seems really difficult to say anything Palestinian without being attacked and deplatformed and being taken out. Um, in, in my own firm, people have made complaints um, externally about some of the work we've done, some of the messaging we've made, um, been dealt with quite easily because there's not really much you can say when there is such a massive body of evidence and everything we do is through the legal frame, uh, through legal framework. That's what lawyers are meant to do. But there is a dual standard. And um, you have, th there, is, there is a real risk to us and me as a solicitor for the work that I'm doing and I'm not I'm very aware of that but you know you have to make this decision at some point 
um, what matters. And um, I had a discussion with my family and um, I said, look, um, just taking this stand may result in some difficult times because you may get demonized in the press. Um, you may misspeak get demonized in the, by the lobbyists and by, I mean, it's just interesting that on my Twitter, every right wing commentator follows me, every single one that I can see that, that, that I'm just waiting for me to say something stupid. I mean, they're going to have a long wait, to be frank, right? Um, but then I'm also very aware that I'm regulated by the Solicitor's Regulatory Authority, and I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure as in 12 hours we're going to have daylight, Oh, hopefully, um, that people are preparing complaints about things that I've done and things that I've said to most the Solicitor's Regulatory Authority. And to be honest with you, for me, it's just a choice. Um, I, I like having a comfortable life. I like having a good job. I like being a solicitor. But I'm prepared to give all of that up if it slows down people dying and stops suffering. And frankly, um, I've had this conversation with my family. I've had this conversation with my parents. I've had this conversation with my aunties and uncles. And I've had, a, had this conversation with my friends. Um, some things are worth giving up if you're doing the right thing. And if we don't do it, if each one of us doesn't take that step and does it, then who's going to do it? Exactly. I think that was what led to our decision, you know, internally at ICGP, because each one of us um, had their own reservations on it. And at some point we were like, we need to be brave and we need to do what we set this organization to do in the first place. And, and I assure you, Dania, that um, we will fight any unfounded allegation made against us. We will fight it as, as aggressively as we're trying to protect people. We're not here to be pushed around. And actually, luckily, we're professionals, we're lawyers, we have uh, a good support network. Everything we do is above board and done by the book because it should be, not because we're trying to protect ourselves, but because that's the way it works. And so, you know, if um, people try to take uh, away from us things that are important to us, the one thing they can't take away from us is the fact that what we're doing is the right thing to do. They'll never be able to take that away from us, ever.